they didn't understand the concept of muscles. So if, you know, when I was, let's say 15 pounds with more, about 15 more pounds of muscle than I had now, everyone just thought I was fat. They didn't understand that I was using this to play a game and to hit the ball as hard as I did and to serve as hard as I did. There was just no concept of that. So relatives, family members, anyone, either here or when I would visit in India, they'd be like, oh, you know, God, you're so bulky, you're so fat, you're always so fat. And I was the fittest of my career and I, you know, we would just scratch our head. Most of the time I would laugh, but it still gets to you when you're a young female developing, uh, you know, when people are calling you fat. This is Neha Oberoi. I'm a former professional tennis player and co-founder of South Asians in Sports. And you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, but you can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. This episode is brought to you by Necessary Thickness. Necessary Thickness is an idea, an approach, a movement, where the brand's founder preaches healthy bodies and strong minds, recognizing that these elements individually can vary. Thick is a metaphor that encompasses a better and stronger you at work, at play, and at life. It's about embracing your flaws, loving yourself, and making the choices that best yield your own happiness. Necessary Thickness is choosing the things in life that move you closer towards achieving your own visions and goals which makes you the best version of you. To find out how you can express your thickness, go to NecessaryThickness.com. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This week we stay on the topic of female body image perception in sports, and we're with uh, Neha Uberoy, uh, who is a former professional tennis player, a social entrepreneur, and a health and wellness advocate. And she's an athlete who struggled with bulimia uh, during her career and also struggling in that transition to life after sports that a lot of us have struggled with. So I'm excited to have Neha on the podcast today. And Neha, could you just start off by, you know, I read one of your blog posts about the four factors that determine your relationship with food. And I thought a good way to start off this episode would be to go over your relationship with food and those four topics. So can you start off by giving us a little bit uh, of history or background about your food history, your food attitude, food logic, and then food skills, and kind of explain that that blog post. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that stemmed from me uh, just kind of coming, you know, having some perspective over the years of what I suffered w- with the eating disorder, and uh, a lot of reflection on how I associated with with food. And I remember since an early age, my parents were uh, very, very health conscious. And it was always only the purest foods. Uh, my mother cooked three to four meals a day for us. And so for me, uh, my, my history was always that, you know, you need to eat healthy food. I knew from a very early age what was unhealthy and what didn't serve me. But then as I got into tennis and that became um, my goal, the attitude towards food was really um, – coming from a nourishment angle, like, is this fuel that's going to help me perform? And if it's not, then you need to, we need to cut it out. And so um, there were certain foods that I had liked growing up that I realized that maybe these were taboo, that maybe I shouldn't be eating them because they're not going to help me towards my goal of being a tennis, a professional tennis player. Right. And so 
yeah, so, you know, with the story I kind of kept telling myself was that, uh, you know, these are foods that I like, but I need to de deny myself them for this goal. And I think that over time, um, among uh, many other factors, that didn't really help me um, have a good relationship because then I, I was constantly just using willpower to deny myself certain things. And we all know that willpower is only, you can only have so much of it, right? Everyone breaks down at a certain point. For sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was that. And then, um, I mean, with the, obviously I forgot food skill, I guess there it was more about the, inf you know, I think I had a, a, a really good understanding of what I needed, what I didn't need, need you know, as an athlete, you're, you're so careful, you're measuring and monitoring everything. Uh, but there's also an element of an emotional attitude uh, towards food as well. And that that was something that needed healing for me uh, because it had become such a like it had become such a process that that um, was just about fueling my body and nothing else. But I think food is such a cultural, it serves such a cultural importance too. You know, you sit down, you have a meal with your family or you a meal with people. And so I was not really able to, to do that very well or very effectively without, you know, overthinking what I'm doing. Um, and, and having like, I wasn't able to have a relaxed attitude towards things. I'll give you an example, Kevin, you know, for me, when I was a child, butter was like a very, it was like a sign of love when my mom would put butter on my, my Indian roti, my bread. She would actually, she wouldn't use butter. She would use ghee, which I don't know if you're familiar with. And I am. That, for me, that was like mother's love. Mom loves me. She put extra ghee on my roti. She didn't put extra ghee on my sister's roti. Like, yep, I'm love. <laughs> and <laughs> when I got older, when I was playing, you know, that was something that was like, oh, you can't, you know, you need to limit your fats. You know, you got to lose weight. You know, you got to be careful of that. You got to cut that out. <clears throat> and so it was another sacrifice I had to make was this like, essentially I had to sacrifice love, you know, in order to, to play this game. And whenever I was like in a down spell or I would reach out for that in a very emotional need for it. And I didn't realize that till much, much later in my life, you know, till I had gone through everything and then said, Oh, this is what my body was needing. It was needing emotional comfort. And I was trying to get it through something that I felt was blocked and it just became a bigger problem. Right. Like what you associated the ghee with was with love and you were like denying yourself of that. Right. Of love, exactly. That's... And then obviously there's the, you know, binge eating patterns that happen. So then you're, you know, you don't know when to stop. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll get into that. I'm, I'm interested to hear about, about that, but I know, were you born in India? No, I was born here in the States. Um, I am one of, of five girls and, uh, all of us were born here, but but one of my sisters, Shika. Uh, so I'm first generation American. Okay, cool. Because um, I know in one of the videos that I watched when you were talking about this exact topic, was that you know how your Indian ethnicity, you know how that kind of, I guess how people viewed your athleticism. And I said at one point you said that people were going were telling you that the muscle is going to turn to fat because like people from India don't have muscle oh. like you had. <laughs> well, no, not turn into fat. Well, so, so South Asian, I think it, it goes with the whole diaspora. I think, uh, I just think we as a culture don't understand 
uh, muscle on a female body. Okay. Like there's no concept of that. I think Nike might have had their first commercial a couple months ago where the most famous Bollywood actress was doing like half a pull-up. Okay. So we're very much, uh, you know, and even in the U.S. actually, you know, now lifting has become cool. Before women were so scared to get bulky or to have muscle. Now now it's a sign of, of fitness. Um, they didn't understand the concept of muscles. So if, you know, when I was, let's say, 15 pounds with more, about 15 more pounds of muscle than I had now, everyone just thought I was fat. They didn't understand that I was using this to play a game and to hit the ball as hard as I did and to serve as hard as I did. There was just no concept of that. So relatives, family members, anyone, either here or when I would visit in India, they'd be like, oh, you know, God, you're so bulky. You're so fat. You're always so fat. And I was the fittest of my career. And I, you know, we would just scratch our heads. Most of the times I would laugh, but it still gets to you when you're a young female developing, uh, you know, when people are calling you fat and they're fat themselves, you know, <laughs> a little hypocritical. Yeah. You know, uh, so it was, that was hard. That was hard. You know, you can't really explain it to them. They don't really get it. Um, the clothes aren't, the Indian clothes aren't tailored to, to fit women with muscles or biceps. So, you know, many a issue with, uh, going to the tailor and asking him, please make it bigger. I can't fit it through my arm and then looking at us funny and, you know, it, it didn't feel good growing up when people didn't understand my body. Right. I can see that being frustrating. <laughs> so yeah. what would you say the trigger was? So I know you said like you were young and developing. So what age were you say that you kind of were feeling these feelings? I think I, I probably was aware of it um, when I was between the ages of 15 and 21, 22. Okay. Uh, so what was like the trigger for your eventual eating disorder and like how old were you when that, when that happened? Well, so the trigger, um, believe it or not, it was the ghee, wasn't it? Sorry. I said it was the ghee, wasn't it? No, it wasn't, it wasn't the ghee actually. It had nothing to do with my body, to be honest, Kevin, um, had everything to do with, uh, a coach that I had and sort of the tumultuous relationship I had there as well as the amount of pressure I was putting on myself to succeed. Um, it all sort of, you know, was the tip of the iceberg, the eating disorder. And believe it or not, throughout the issue, I never had any body image problems. I never, I, I didn't feel like I was ugly or fat or unattractive. I actually really appreciated my body and what it could do. I mean, I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, why is how is this fat? Like, why do I need to lose weight? I don't understand. I, I never had the complex of feeling like my body wasn't beautiful or good enough. It was others telling me that and trying to control my, in, my every move. I was micromanaged so much that my food or what I did with it was the only area in my life I had or I felt I had control. And so that spiraled into an eating disorder, but it wasn't because of a body image issue. Right. My coach was very toxic. I mean, he, I actually have to give him credit for being an excellent um, tennis strategist. He was very, very good at the game. 
But mentally and emotionally, what he did to me was um, nothing short of torture. And so he decided that I had to lose this arbitrary 10 pounds of weight. And as a muscular athlete, losing 10 pounds of weight is not an overnight story. I wasn't fat to begin with. I was 140 pounds. He said, you have to be 130 pounds. And I'm 5'7", so that's a bit tough, uh, especially at 19, 20 years old. So he decided that controlling my meals, not allowing me to eat dinner after a six-hour practice session and weighing me five to six times a day would be the way for me to get there. And I foolishly went along with this ridiculous program because I thought this is what I need to do to win Wimbledon. I'll do, I'll do anything it takes, and I think that this is the way, so I'm just going to go with it. And so I'd be hungry, and, and you know he would weigh me and he'd say, if you're not down three pounds by the end of the day, no dinner. If you're not this, then no dinner. And, and you know, it was very controlling. And so I actually just started binging and purging solely because I was starving. And the purging happened so I could make the weight on the scale. It got to a point where I started using it as a coping mechanism for the amount of stress I had, uh, and that just uncovered a lot more about myself, and, and it spiraled out of control to the point where I had to stop playing professionally and get professional help, and uh, unfortunately, I just couldn't get back into tennis after that. The love of the game was was gone completely, and um, you know the eating disorder kind of wasn't able to just to... to um, be controlled if I had if I was back on the court. Okay. There was just too much behind it, so I stepped away from the game. So, I guess I'm, I know you listened to the John O'Sullivan interview, and we kind of talked about how coaches underestimate, you know, their words and the impact of their words on their athletes, and I think that's might be something that you know possibly happened with your coach, but like. Have you ever have you talked to your coach since then or No, I've never I've never spoken to him. So like where where did you get the coach from? Like where did he come from that was he like recommended okay, so by he someone? He was a very highly reputed uh coach on the tour and I don't know that my story is that dissimilar to m- many other females who have have gone through this, especially in the game of tennis, which is a highly lucrative sport, very very visible and you know sponsorships money come a lot from the way you look, etc. So you think he had that in mind or No, I just think it was, you know, if I reflect now, I don't know him, I don't know what's in his mind, but right. I, I think it was just a way for him to have control over me. To have a, a sense of trust or like I've got her, I can control her and, you know, uh, you know, because I'm a I was a very intelligent, very independent thinking person. And so this was a way to sort of manipulate and control me through this arbitrary weight situation. Right. I guess like, I just don't see like what was in it for him. Like he doesn't have a nutritional background, I'm assuming, you know, so who is he to say like what you should eat, how much you should weigh, you know? You know, I think we're putting a lot of power on him and instead we should be putting, I think more power on me in that situation to say, why couldn't I step up for myself and say, no, this is not a good way to do this? Why did I think that 
I, I had to be so desperate um, to follow this ridiculousness uh, for this goal. You know, what, what about me didn't allow my, me to protect myself in that moment? And yeah, you can say age, you were young, you were in your late teens, uh, you had pressure, you, you know, your family had sacrificed so much to get you to that point, you just wanted to give it all. But there's also something to be said, I think, Kevin, uh, for your own self-worth, right, in that moment, when you're suffering and, and you clearly need help and you're not reaching out, there's, there's, there's things behind that that need to be uncovered. And yes, there's definitely awareness. I had no idea. I mean, I saw eating disorders on TV and I thought it was like, oh, some girl's boyfriend broke up with her and now she has an eating disorder. I didn't really know that it was a form of depression, a form of severe depression. I didn't know that. that I mean, that's interesting that you say that. And I was just listening to your response to that. And I'm a big... Uh... Jocko Willink podcast. He's like a former Navy SEAL, but he wrote this book called Extreme Ownership. And I feel like it's kind of an athlete mentality in terms of like you're taking ownership of the situation that happened to you and your you and your eating disorder that you had. You said that you you know could have handled it differently, but I kind of look I, at it as like, excuse me. I mean, I don't have regrets. You know, it happened. It happened, but. Yeah, I don't mean in that sense. I just mean like you're taking ownership of, you know, I I feel like the coach, I I guess I I come from a place where I always wanted to please my coaches, right? And like I was always waiting for that pat on the back and I would put my, you know, sacrifice my body on the football field, you know, and I almost killed myself largely because I wanted to think, I wanted my coach to think that I was tough. You know, and I feel like. I mean, I'm a good Indian girl. I did what my parents said. I did what my coaches said. Did what my teacher said, uh, you know. Right, and I think that it's novel that you're kind of trying to take ownership and protect your coach in, in some degree. But I think from you know, say a girl that's listening to this that might be going through the same exact thing, you know, to I think they could look to your story and, and show like you know what, like you know, my coach is telling me to do this, and like that's the same thing that happened to her, you know. So I don't think yeah. it was, it wasn't all your fault. So no, it definitely wasn't yeah. all my fault, but. You know, what I'm just trying to say is that had I had more self-worth at the time, had I felt like, yes, this might be a way for me to succeed, but it's also killing me, and let me put myself first before this goal, Okay. I might have done things differently. I might have questioned. I might have paused. Uh, For me, I grew up from a very young age. Uh, with a very a typical stage parent where the goal was to be the best tennis player. And so you put your emotions aside, you put, you sacrifice many things along the way to get there. And what I'm trying to say is that one of those things shouldn't be your self-worth. Right. Now, I think that the way that you explain that, I can completely relate because you're right. You put the goal, like when I relate it back to my, my, my own story, I was putting the goal of being a college football player, winning a state championship, being a senior captain, you know, all these things, the girls in the stands. I always say that, um, I put these goals ahead of my own self-worth, you know, the goal of my coach thinking that I was tough, you know, or telling me, Oh, Kevin, you're a really tough player. You know, like I, I put all those things ahead of my own 
self-worth and my own health, to be honest. So I think that's, yeah, it's a good, good clarification. I like that. Uh, so I'm kind of curious about the bulimia disorder. So I, like, is it one of the things like you like were crushing Oreos or like, were you crushing like <laughs> kale, like kale salads? And then like, like, did you pick and choose like what you ate? Or, you know, like, oh, it was like, it was like a, they're episodic. So think of uh, somebody who has like an anxiety disorder or is like a, uh, has a manic uh, episode. In that t- moment or in those hour or half hour that happens, you're doing things on impulse. So yeah, it could be crushing a box of Oreos or having a field day at the buffet when no one's looking or eating everything in the mini bar. You're in extreme anxiety. And you're in a lot of mental pain. Very hard for me to describe the pain, but it's 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 extremely uncomfortable. Like you don't you don't want to be in your own skin, and you you know you're crying. You don't know what to do. You're panicking. Um, Obviously, I was always alone when I did these episodes. Then I realized after I had done them what I had done, and so then the, the throwing up ensues, so that you can kind of make amends to whatever it is that you did. But what was m- more disturbing is that the vomiting was actually a catharsis because it's so physical that I would pass out. And that was the only time I had an hour, half hour of men- of peace. You know, thoughts were calm. It's like, you know, after you do meditation, you're kind of just low and you feel great. And that was what I was hooked on to. These manic episodes where I just could not control my emotional um, ish, you know, episodes, and then that calm that came from doing this really wasn't about the food. The food was just a mechanism to get, get that feeling. Correct. Right. So I know you mentioned that you, you know, bulimia is a form of depression. Yes. So did you ever kind of uncover? where that depression comes from. I, I have interviewed a bunch of athletes who have suffered from depression and sometimes it's not like a, you're just like kind of born with it. Like it just kind of happens. So, well, I think that I definitely have like maybe hereditary aspects of, of, you know, having that be easier for me to, to, to be depressed. But I think the depression came from something I touched on earlier, which was this denial of self, um, constantly denying whatever it is that I, my self-expression, who I was, for this dream of tennis, which was not my own. Uh, It wasn't my dream to be a professional athlete. It was thrust upon me, and it was a very intense life from a very, very young age. And I think the depression just came, um, came out in the form of bulimia, because of all the factors and, you know, the coach and, and and the eating patterns that were being controlled. But it really, it was this extreme denial of my, myself, my emotions, what I wanted for my life and who I wanted to be. Uh, was just all kind of swept under the rug and it just had to come out. Okay. Uh, so when was like the turn? I know in your Sports Illustrated article, which I'm going to put in the show notes because it was really well written and really it was I really enjoyed it. I took a ton of quotes from there that I wanted to discuss. Oh, um, the one part where you said, 
my body was begging my mind to start listening to my heart. So I, I feel like that was kind of like your, your turning point. So, you know, what did it take for you to start listening to your heart during this time? Well, like you, Kevin, I was very good at listening to everybody else telling me what to do and what I should be doing in life. But then when I saw that I was revolting against myself physically by having these episodes, I realized that I would probably end up severely damaging my health or potentially killing myself. Many thoughts of suicide came along with that. Um, if I didn't stop and get in touch with what, what was happening. And the bulimia was really painful. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it, you know, after a while. And so in an effort to just stop this, um, this mental hell that I was in, I, I had to figure out a way. It was just impossible for me to continue life with these episodes. Like I just, I couldn't do it. And so the pain became so much that I had to face myself and say, okay, yeah, like let's hit reset. You're doing things that you might not enjoy and it's going to be really difficult for you to tell the people who are closest to you, no, I'm not doing this anymore, but it's what you're going to have to do for your own health. And that was a, at 21, 22, that was not an easy uh, decision for me to make. You know, I, I felt like I was throwing away 20 years of my life that I had dedicated to my identity, who I was, my whole family, all the sacrifices they made. And I was just throwing it away. That's what it felt like in that moment. But at the same time, I felt so liberated. And I was able to start coming out of the depression and the, the episodes and the angst that was in my, in, you know, in between my ears. Right. I guess like that takes like incredible strength to have those thoughts, you know, when you're going through something like that, that's like bringing you down. It's like, I guess I like, wrote a lot. I had a, I had a journal. I, I wrote a lot in my journal. That was my outlet. I think that saved me a lot. Just having the, just writing it down. But yeah, it was, a, you know, I'm very good at um, analyzing myself now. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. It's it's impressive. I feel like it's a skill that most people don't have. So if you think journaling was, do you think journaling was a way that you kind of forged yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a lot of friends on the tour, right? You know, it's a pretty lonely sport, tennis, and, and you can't really talk about this openly. These are very personal things. So I, the only outlet for me was writing it down, keeping a little journal, and, you know, going back to that journal, even now, sometimes I, I go back to that journal, it's, I'm almost 10 years out, and I'm like, wow, really sucked, you know, whatever I was going through at that moment, you right. know, man, I feel bad for you that time, and, you know, kudos for getting out of that, so it definitely helped me, very therapeutic to write, in my opinion. Okay, cool. So, all right, let's go into your tennis career, so I'm kind of... Uh, curious about the timing so I know you were a professional but you also played at Princeton right yeah so what I did was um I skipped a few grades in high school and or in yeah throughout elementary and I went to Princeton as a freshman at 16 years old and I played my <laughs> what? I, I just made really big eye wide eyes I know you can't see that but I was like what? 16 years old you went to Princeton all right yeah we know you're really smart and you're, you're very self-aware so I mean 
continue. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, played my freshman year on the Princeton team. And then I took a leave of absence, which is basically like a deferral. Okay. Uh, and I left Princeton for six years. And during that time, I played on the professional circuit. And then I came back in 2009 to finish the remaining three years of college. But you didn't play tennis that time. I did not play for the team. So you, as once you turn professional, you can't play NCAA. Okay, yeah. Um, That's kind of what I thought. That's how it works in football. So I assumed... I started coaching at that time. Okay. Um, and uh, so as I came back and I, and I finished in 2012, where, where, when I was much older than everybody else. <laughs> Both ends of the spectrum there. Both ends of the spectrum. <laughs> how, how was that? Was that? How was that going to Princeton oh, at 16? Course, Kevin was so difficult. You know, I had quit tennis. I had gotten – I was just getting over this whole eating disorder and, you know – all this stuff, and then I was thrown into the ringer. I hadn't read a book in like six years, you know, and, and I'm, I'm standing around geniuses left, right, and center. I mean, that was another pressure cooker to get into. Yeah. Um, and then just sort of having this identity shift of going from professional athlete to student, you know, it was, it was hard. It was really hard. I, I, I felt like finally senior year I had my bearings. But um, I just had to throw myself into it. There was no other way. Yeah, it took a while. Well, what about when you were 16 and around surrounded by kids who were, you know, 21, 22? Well, both, both ends, I never told anyone my age, really. Only a few people kind of knew. So that, you know, that worked in my favor. No one asked. I didn't tell. Um, but at 16, I, I guess the word to sum that all up was overwhelming. I think it was just overwhelming for me. I was still trying to train at a very elite level, waking up early, doing tennis practice with the team, then doing my own outside practice, my own fitness, trying to keep up with uh, my first year of college at the number one institution in the nation. Yeah. Uh, I think just the word to sum that all up is just overwhelmed. <laughs> I mean, I would, I can't even like wrap my mind around that. So. <laughs> I can't imagine how you did that when you were 16. Um, so we already talked about your coach, but I'm curious, do you think that your career would have been different had you had a female coach? And like, what are your thoughts on males coaching females? You know, that's a very good question. Um, female coaches have, have sort of just started making waves in tennis. Uh, I think we look down upon them. Oh, she's a female coach. She can't be as good as a male coach. Even from a female perspective, you're saying? Like I the think female. even as a female perspective. I think now I'm much more aware because I'm a coach myself and, uh, you know, know enough to know that that was just society um, leeching its, its viewpoint onto me. But I definitely remember having those thoughts when I was younger, like, oh, if it's a male coach, you just automatically give them that respect, and a female might not know what she's talking about, uh, which I think can't be more wrong. I think having a female coach would probably be amazing because she would know how my brain worked. She would know how my the game worked, you know, especially someone who might have already played on the tour. Uh, because all of my life, it had always been 
the epitome of what I was trying to do was always a male example, which is just physically impossible for a lot of females, right? Like, I don't think like you, I don't look like you, but you want me to serve like you, you want me to play the game like you. Um, you know, so I was always chasing this, this example that I couldn't physically achieve. I think it would have been nice to have seen a female example of how um, to get where I was trying to go. I think it would have, I would have felt like I could actually achieve it. It's interesting. I, I think the world is trending towards that way, and I think it's kind of cool to see that. And it seems like you're at the forefront of that by being a coach as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't coach professionally, Emma. It's, it's, it's juniors, but I can see the difference. I can see that there's a lot of work to be done when I, when I'm coaching male young males versus young females, and having to establish that, hey, you need to respect me, versus the male counterpart coach will just automatically get that respect purely because he's a male, right. but might be much worse of a coach. It's very interesting for me to see that now. But back to your question, Kevin, if I had had a female coach, if that coach was also not aware and didn't have the um, the education or the uh, you know the ability to see how impactful their words are, I might have been in the same situation. So I don't know that it had so much to do with male female as it is as the awareness and responsibility of a coach. Okay. So I know you said like you're trying to get the respect of your male uh, athletes that you coach. Yeah, especially you know the 14, 12, 14. Yeah, they think they're like yeah, I think they're the man. But I think they're better than you, first of all. Yeah, better than everyone. But do you just just line them up and and smack a 120 mile an hour serve at them, or is that how you get the respect? (laughs) Basically, I mean, (laughs) short of abuse, but yeah, basically. (laughs) All right, everyone, line up. (laughs) Yeah. Basically that, and then you know, make them do a lot of running if they're out of line, and then and then they figure it out, and they're like, oh, she's not messing around. Okay, right. let me let me pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> Little dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you <saw> me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so another thing about tennis that you've kind of alluded to before is that it's a very individual sport, and you say you're very alone at times. So, like, how did that? How did the individualization? can't it's a big word for kevin i didn't <laughs> well I, I interviewed a guy at princeton once but i didn't go to princeton so Pr- pronunciation is not not a great thing for me but did the individualization of tennis affect you throughout your career in terms of like performance and you already kind of talked about that it did affect your eating disorder at times i mean i think because it's so individual you're constantly being compared kevin you're constantly being compared to everybody male female i mean mostly all the other females and you're also comparing yourself your body your game your background i mean anything that can be compared you're doing it because it's just you out there alone and you don't have a team on the court with you and so it it becomes a um it just becomes a game of like you know um, there's almost intimidation. I mean, a lot of times with the individualization, there's when there's a lot of attention on one player versus another, you know, the other people might feel intimidated just because there's just so much attention on that player. They might be better than them, but the fact that there's so much attention and 
this person got a Nike sponsorship and you didn't, they must somehow be better than you. It really plays in your psyche because you don't have a team to rely on to fall back on. It's just you, you out there. You can't hide in, in tennis. You cannot hide in tennis. Not only are you battling yourself, you know, but you're also battling that constant compar- comparison that you that you face. And when you have coaches or parents that are also doing that for you, it doesn't help either. <laughs> right. A little tip out for the parents and coaches out there. <laughs> and do not compare your kids. I mean, it is just there is nothing good you get. You think that you're in, you know, helping them become more competitive, but you're you're really just hurting them. At, at one point, you said, or you described tennis as a self-inflicted obligation. So I'm curious as like what you meant by that, or if I'm, I, I'm not, it's not. I didn't write it down as a quote, so maybe I didn't say that correctly. Um, but I think it's. I'm guessing it's had how you had the goal of tennis, or it wasn't really your goal. Yeah, Kevin, it's sort of like how you and I talked about. You know, it, it was my identity. It was. It was the reason I existed. Okay. Why do you exist? I exist because I need to be a number one in the te- in the world on the WTA tour. That was like, I thought that that was my, my dharma, which is a Hindu word. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but sort of like your des- your your path, your path to righteousness. And so I, I had this very grave, severe understanding of this is this task. Like I was some warrior that had to go and like conquer. Mission. Yeah, not just conquer, but complete this particular mission on this particular path you know, using tennis as the medium. And so when you look at the game that way versus, hey, this is fun and I like to do it, I want to see how far I can take it, it's a lot of pressure. It's a pressure cooker in your brain. You don't need anyone else telling you anything else to just implode with the amount of pressure you put on yourself. Right. And talking about pressure, I I know you've written about like the importance of forgiving yourself, especially in a sport that's probably very individualized. Yeah. So like what's your advice for athletes to forgive themselves and to kind of like move on from their mistakes? You know, I struggled with that so much when I was an athlete, um, when I was an athlete. And I think the reason why is because I didn't have perspective. <clears throat> Again, I was like just so myopic about this goal. And so every mistake was just like a little cut you know, right. like I was cutting myself. I didn't have the, the perspective of this is just a game. This is, there's so much more of life. Missing a forehand up 30, 40, you know, break point is not the end of the world. It doesn't make you a bad person. And I think I didn't, I didn't, either it was the way I grew up or what was told to me, but I, I always inflicted this like good, bad when I was making mistakes. And so you're, oh, you're a bad person because you missed this second serve and you double faulted. And so it took me a very long time when I was out of the, when I was out of the tour and actually just playing tennis for fun, you know, and I missed a foreign and I thought, oh, that didn't hurt so bad because I have my self-worth, who I am is not, is much greater than this one shot that I hit. But I think it's hard for a lot of young athletes to to have that perspective and and I think the only way you can get it is by constantly reminding yourself of having that sort of bird's eye view of what you're doing. You know, yes, I I, I want this game. I trained really hard for it. I you know, I, I didn't go to that one's birthday party or whatever it is and I'm dieting, but 
you're still a human being. You know, the birds are still chirping. Life still exists whether you make the shot or you don't. No one's going to die. Yeah. No one's going to die. No one is going to die. Maybe you might die from the pressure you inflict on yourself. But other than that, no one's going to die. Right. I mean, I used to do the same thing, especially in, like, baseball. I would, like, whip myself with lashes, like, on my back. You know, not not literally, but, like, with with, with the thoughts that I was telling myself. I'm like, yeah, that, that definitely wasn't uh, I feel pr- like parents productive. don't know you know, parents need to understand that too. You know, that they, like, they make reactions or they say something. And like, the kid knows when he effed up. Like, you don't need to extra tell them that they effed up. They feel bad enough. Right. As it is like you don't need to add insult to injury at that point. You just need to help them with balance and perspective so that they can keep fighting. That they're not that they're not beating themselves up so much that they're defeated. Right. You know. No, I I completely agree. So during your tennis career, how how did you did you notice like the evolution of kind of like the sexualization of the sport of, of women's tennis like as you went like from the time when you were a 16 year old on the Princeton uh, tennis team to you know through your professional career, you know like I'm just thinking in terms of like the evolution of uniform styles and form fitting versus loose fitting you know. Well, I think that has a lot to do with society, too. I think women are always sexualized no matter what, right? We're always objectified, whether you put us on a tennis court or you put us in the, you know, in a CEO position or you put us in the kitchen. We're always being sexualized. I think with when it comes into clothing, that's just the evolution of society as a whole as well. Um, did I feel like it was becoming more and more hypersexualized? No, but I became more and more aware of it as I became a young woman. I think it was always there. It was always very pervasive in tennis. And a lot of females use that to their advantage. They take advantage of it with sponsorships or contracts or um, you know whatever have you. Um, and I think it's just part of the game that we have to deal with unfortunately okay do you think uh, that there's any performance benefit to the tighter uh like clothing i only say that from like a clothing yes i definitely agree that wearing lycra and short shorter skirts and sleeveless or you know dry fit is so much better than what maybe like althea gibson wore like when she was playing with pants and like long skirts that is really difficult to move in so in terms of a performance Oh yeah, there's nothing like it. Um, is it sexualized? For sure. Is it sexualized more than males? Absolutely. But I also understand that women, as you know, just women generally are always objectified and sexualized. So unfortunately, that's something we have to deal with. Did you see that video on like Facebook about the guy from Wimbledon, or like he got called out from the stands and he like? It was a women's doubles match, and they like gave him like a skirt to wear and like this really tight. This guy was like this huge fat guy, and <laughs> he had to go out there. I'll try to put it in the show notes. It was like too funny, but I'm just thinking of like the sexualization of sports, and then like you put a man in what you guys wear, and it was just kind of funny. Um, <laughs> See, I missed. I would have loved that. I'll send it to you after this. I love. I mean, I would get a lot. We get a lot of comments. My sister and I would get a lot of body comments a lot of unsolicited comments 
that I, I know that my male counterparts will never receive in their life, no matter what. Even now, you know, I, I barely play now. Whenever I step on the court, it's always just about my body first, my game second. Do you have an example? Um, that sticks so out? on Twitter, like, you know, it's things like, wow, you guys look way better than you do on the court. <laughs> what? I mean, yeah, exactly. That's what I said. I was like, "What? What is that supposed to mean? Like, was that a compliment? Was that a diss? Are we? Are you trying to say that we're too masculine on the court?" He was trying to say we were too masculine looking on the court. What's up, Grace? I'm on a I'm on a podcast right now. Oh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um. You know, it was like, so we were just like, "Oh, okay, I guess." Or it was things like, you know, you should wear this type of clothing because it accentuates your legs better. You know, just like unsolicited yeah. advice. Oh, thanks, dude. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks, dude. Like, or how come you don't ever practice without your shirt on? What? You know? <laughs> yeah. Where do people get this stuff I'm from? Like, no, I was talking about my forehand. You must have misheard. What? I don't know. <laughs> uh, do you have, like, what are your current thoughts on, like, the state of strong versus feminine and, like, that idea? You think it's going in a good direction? Oh yeah, I love what I'm seeing on social media now. All these like she squats hashtags and lift, and I love that. I'm so into that. I wish that was that was the um, I wish that was there. Or that was the theme when I was an athlete because oh god, finding clothes that fit me was difficult, you know, and, and women would just not understand that we're lifting so our legs are bigger and all oh, your thighs, thighs rub together. That was like a big issue. But now people are realizing that that's beautiful and that strength is like a, a way to be fit and healthy. I love it. I'm all for it. Yeah. And for it. This episode is actually going to be brought to you by uh, Necessary Thickness, which is uh, one of my good friends' clothing lines. And it's about, you know, really embracing that you know, strong versus feminine or strong is feminine type. type thing. I like that. That's a good, that's a good word. You know, I, I love it. And, you know, I, I wish now I see more clothing, like actually clothing stores um, appealing to women who have, you know, actually have legs or actually have biceps. And like, it was such a challenge when I was growing up. And now I see or when I was going, you know, when I was on the tour and now I see this, especially like on social media, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, her like, well, one of her slogans is like, thigh gaps are out of style. So I thought that was kind of that was nice. funny. Yeah. yeah, Very much needed as well. Yeah. Very, very much needed. Uh, okay. So I know you do a lot with like injury prevention stuff and you play tennis for a long time. So how were you able to stay healthy, you know, throughout your career? What kind of stuff did you do? You know, um, I was a really skinny Indian girl and we had to work a lot on um, body strength on strength um and so what what i did from a very young age was a lot of swimming and lightweight body exercises to get myself up to an ability to actually lift weights so you know most 13 14 year olds maybe from different backgrounds would be able to to handle weight i wasn't which actually worked in my favor so i was able to build a very strong base for myself using body weight stuff, doing swimming and that kind of thing. And I think we carried that on throughout, my sister and I, um, throughout our, the pro tour where we would make sure that all of our little band exercises and all the little ways you could 
hurt your rotator cuff were taken care of because we started from uh, such a slow progress of doing things, you know. Just because I didn't have the um, the natural right. Um, you know, Seriously, yeah, strong foundation. The, the better the, the, foundation. the foundation, the higher the building you could make, right? Exactly. And I noticed that a lot with my young, with the young athletes I'm working with between the ages of 12 and 15. They don't have a very strong foundation. And they're out there playing you know, many hours a day without having done the homework behind that, making sure that their hips are stable and that their knees and their quads are, are you know, they're able to lift themselves up the right way or their ab strength. And that really hurts them because by 14, 15, they're already injured or have some kind of tendonitis. Right. So I was very lucky. My, my parents were very good about making sure we did swimming, other really body weight exercises to get us to a, a really good foundation. Cool. Did you suffer any injuries throughout your career that kind of like kept I, you out of the game? I had a, I had a slight injury. I actually had a stress fracture, fracture on my rib, my right rib. Um, I think it was just because I was serving so hard, Kevin. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I, I believe it. <laughs> I actually don't know where that came from, but um, that was one injury that was that was uh, difficult. And when I was younger, uh, I had a lot of knee pain, which a lot of people do when they play on hard court. You know, you're growing, you got a lot of growing pains, and then I had bursitis, a little a little tendonitis in my knees. That was, you know, as I was doing my growth spurts, spurts I had to take care of, but nothing really that sidelined me. For more than a couple months. Okay. Uh, let's finish off by talking about your transition to life after tennis. And I took a couple of quotes from that Sports Illustrated excerpt again. Uh, just so I'm going to read them and then we'll kind of talk about what your thoughts were on, on those. So I said, you know, what followed were five years of depression, anger, intense anxiety, crippling confusion. My thoughts, which used to be on future wins, were mirrored in the past. I don't know if I said mirrored right. We're going back to that whole like pronunciation thing, but uh, so can you kind of explain like how you were feeling, you know, during that time after you going back to Princeton and that loss of identity and trying to find a new one? Yeah, so I guess I feel like I touched on this earlier, but it it was really hard. I mean, people would ask me like, "Oh, well, what do you do?" And I would just like break down in tears, you know, like, I don't know what I do. I don't know who I am. I don't even know what I like to eat. Like, I don't know anything. And it, it took me a really long time to build, to just build like an identity outside of being an athlete. Uh, luckily, I was in a institution like Princeton and in a college setting where you have a lot of access to things at your fingertips, opportunities, things to try internships, things like that. That was like, it was a very long process. It was not an overnight thing. And it was constantly a trial and error. Um, the depression came from just not, not having a, a goal that I'm working towards, which I was so used to having. Okay, this is, this is my goal. I got to get there. These are the steps I have to take. So now it was all up to me what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And that felt like a, a lot of pressure to figure out what I should do. But I also was scared that I wasn't doing enough, that I wasn't good enough, that I had let go of a dream that I should have stuck stuck onto. And now I'll never reach that pinnacle of success. And that haunted me for a very long time of just this feeling of, will I just be a mediocre person? 
uh, and it took, and it's still a work in progress. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to you and say like, Oh, I'm perfect now, but it just took a lot of change in belief systems. I had about success and failure, winning and losing this black and white mentality took a, a lot of breaking that down, challenging it and saying, okay, this is actually an illogical statement. How do you believe in this? And so that sort of self-introspection kind of came into play in, in the writing. And also just experiencing new things, you know, constantly experiencing, putting myself into new uncomfortable situations like dance classes like that. Okay. <laughs> when did you start doing dance classes? Oh, man. I think I, like, auditioned for, like, six dance troops at Princeton and got rejected by, like, all of them. You know, I was like that and then I was like okay I, I gotta I gotta you know I gotta do this if I like doing this I can just keep doing it I don't have to like be the best at it or win it I could just do it for the sake of enjoyment like you know I don't know when you were an athlete Kevin if you ever just did things for the sake of of joy or of pleasure no I, I feel like, like most very, athletes don't do that yeah it's a very new concept it's like oh I'm gonna pick up this hobby because I think it's fun not because I think I can win and like be famous and make millions of dollars. Right. So it was like, so that's what I mean by breaking down those belief systems. Yeah. I think it's really cool that you put yourself out of your comfort zone to try to do these, those dancing auditions. Like you said, did you, did you struggle like with that rejection, you know, like yes. from being a, a elite level athlete, professional oh. tennis player to being rejected from the Princeton, you know, dance, whatever you were trying to do. Yeah, especially when people are like less athletic than you. You're like, how come she made it? Why did she, why did she choose? Why did she choose? You know? Right. What's wrong with me? You know? Um, yes, rejection as well as criticism was very hard for me to take. Uh, even the simpler, simplest things. I remember taking a campus job um, where I was like a welcome desk greeter. You know, be like, hi, welcome to Princeton. You know, that kind of a job and. I had arranged the desk and I put the stapler somewhere and then the manager came up and she's like, oh, you know, actually, Neha, we don't put the staplers here. We put them over there. And I remember going to the bathroom and crying and breaking down and be like, oh, I'm such a bad person. I'm you blew bad. it. Yeah, I blew it. <laughs> you know? I've come a long way from that, that, but it's taken a while, Kevin. I'm not going to lie. It's taken time. It's taken a lot of self-work, a lot of self-work. Cool. Well, I, I feel like you've you've come a long way, and your your story is a great example. And I, I'm curious, do you think that you could have had a hobby outside of tennis while you were playing and still reached the same level that you you were able to achieve? That's you know, I think about that. That's so funny. No one's ever asked me that, but I think about that often. And I don't know if it's if it's a hobby. Maybe not something that was physically taxing, but I know for one, uh, for one, the Bryan brothers are, are really into music. They're a very good doubles team, number one doubles team in the world, Bryan brothers. And they like have their own little band. I definitely know that having the balance would have helped me be a better player, whether that was through a hobby or through studying or through some other means. I don't know. Uh, if I were to go back now, I would definitely have one or two other things going on in my life. Yeah, non non physical. You're not beating up your body, but it's yeah, something you can kind of like express yourself. Yeah, 
Yeah, I know, like, the, yeah, it's like a, I know a lot of athletes like kind of advocate for that. Um, a guy by the name of Nate Jackson, he's a former uh, professional football player, and he advocates for athletes to kind of take up the arts, you know, like, yeah, music or acting or writing or painting, like those kind of things. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And I also would tell myself that by doing that doesn't mean you're not dedicating yourself to the sport, you know, just because you're having these hobbies. As a matter of fact, it's making you a better, more relaxed and fiercer competitor. For sure. But yeah. I only know that now, you know. Yeah, you don't think about it at the time. Yeah, think, I, Thinking back when I played football in high school, I remember I started as a sophomore at linebacker. Right? It was stressed me out like no other because I was like, oh, man, like I have to live up to these expectations. And I used to love going fishing like on the weekends, like after the games because that was the only time that I was like relaxed. And like I, looking back, that was like how I managed that situation. But it kind of goes into that having other hobbies on the side. Absolutely. So I know you said you didn't like when people ask you what you do, um, but I'm going to kind of – close the episode with like what's on the horizon for Neha and what are, what things are you passionate about these days and what you're working towards and where can people find you oh wow okay well right now I am um, I'm really excited about this project that I've taken up I'm the co-founder of South Asians in sports which is a network of um, sports industry professionals of South Asian heritage I felt it was important that we create an infrastructure around athletes uh, with people working in the sports industry that are uh, of South Asian descent. When I, when I was an athlete, didn't have a lot of journalists or lawyers or doctors or you know, coaches even that, were, that looked like me or you know, that were brown. And so I would love to introduce people to the, the, the potential career opportunities of not just being a professional athlete, but working around the sport. Um, sports industry so that's one thing that we're doing really cool um, wonder of that yeah it, it's been a lot of fun to build that and um aside from that i'm i, I write i i mentor a lot of students as well and um i'm trying to figure out what would be the best way to continue to to give my or to use my background and my knowledge or skill set um, whether that's with a young athletes or general population, I haven't figured that piece out yet. Um, but you know, you can definitely find me online on Twitter, on my blog, um, a little bit on Instagram. You know, I post a lot of pictures of food though. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> one of those, huh? I'm one of, I'm totally one of those and I'm not even... I'm not even gonna like deny that I'm one of those people. Well, I'll link everything up on your show on the show notes for this episode, all your handles and your website and everything like that. Um, you want to just finish off the episode by giving your last piece of advice, maybe like a, a one-liner for uh, athletes who might be going through the same thing that you went through. Sure. Um, I guess I would say that just know that this is a journey. Um, as cliche as it sounds. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. I used to think you got to get there fastest. You know, if I'm, if I'm not this ranking by this age, I haven't made it. I realized that I couldn't be more wrong. It just adds pressure. But if you can just break down your goals day by day 
And if you're hitting those goals on a daily basis, you've already made it. You're already improving. Um, you know, we, we, we think about the finish line so much, but so much about the athlete's journey is in the day-to-day. So if you can enjoy that and you really love that, then you're already a winner. That's perfect. I, lo- I love that for, for an ending right there. And Neha, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story and being vulnerable enough to you know, talk about some difficult times throughout your career. And I, I wish you the best of luck and let me know how I can help you in the future. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for the opportunity. Anytime.